This is Rina Ba Eliyahu with Rab Yehuda HaKohen, Vision Magazine, Vision Movement, and you're listening to the Next Stage Podcast. Today we're going to be discussing Tuba'av. What is it? What is the holiday? You know, growing up in the diaspora, um, I always related to Tuba'av as Valentine's Day, the Jewish Valentine's Day. So today I kind of want to dissect is that an accurate presentation? Is it the Hebrew holiday of love? Or are we just very colonized and misunderstanding what the real um, meaning behind this holiday is? So, Ravi Huda, let's discuss. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, that's a good question. You know, I think anytime we try to contextualize one of our own ancient practices or festivals uh, or special dates within another people's civilization, we, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what's going on here? And I think the fact that you and many other Jews relate to Tuba'av as the Jewish Valentine's Day is already a little bit problematic. Just, you know, Valentine's Day being like the normal thing taking place around you that everybody understands, uh, everybody has an opinion on, and then Tuba'av being this like kind of little Jewish thing that's happening in the corner, uh, as opposed to uh, us being able to center our own culture, our own identity, uh, our own calendar, and uh, try to understand like the authentic, true meanings behind these days for us and not try to shoehorn, you know, our festivals, especially our lesser known festivals, into you know somebody else's civilization or calendar or culture right that makes a lot of sense so what are we remembering and how do we celebrate to then well there are essentially uh, six events commemorated on tubav tubav means the 15th day of the month of av or menachem av you know if we want to be consoled and i think the feature that all these six events share in common is a, a theme of segments of our people and segments of our land being united. And uh, our sages give six reasons that we rejoice on the 15th of Av. Uh, the first is the uh, fact that the desert generation ended, meaning there was a generation that left Egypt and following what we call the sin of the spies, right? When the Israelites declared that we would not enter the promised land, the entire generation who had left Egypt essentially was sentenced to die in the wilderness. And every year until the 40th year, on the eve of the 9th of Av, right? Which is actually the anniversary of that transgression. Like Tisha B'Av was the anniversary of when the spies, you know, convinced the nation that it was a bad idea to attempt to conquer our land. Um, so every year on that night, uh, Moshe would instruct the men to go out and dig, like dig their own graves, essentially. People would leave their tents, they would dig themselves graves, they would sleep in them overnight. And uh, the next morning, a messenger would say, let the living separate from the dead. And every year on the 9th of Av, roughly 15,000 men would have died overnight and the rest would just return to the camp, you know, for at least another year. And in the 40th year, they did this and no one died. At first, 
Some of the people assumed that they miscalculated the date, so they did it again and again and again. And this went on until the night of the 15th of Av, Tubav, when finally uh, the people realized that the decree had been lifted and they made this a day of celebration, okay? Um, now, the reason for the miscalculation might have been that they were counting 40 years from the actual sin of the spies, but the decree had retroactively began a year earlier when we left Egypt, meaning that sin of the spies was roughly, I guess, uh, almost a year and a half after we had left Egypt, right? We had been at Har Sinai for almost a year. We were at Sinai for almost a year. And this took place after we had left Sinai. It's actually a very interesting story because we had been experiencing everything miraculously up to that point. Everything was miraculous for us. And the assumption was that we would conquer our land miraculously as well. But by sending spies into the land, it's almost as if Moshe flipped the switch that suddenly turned our conquest into a natural conquest instead of a supernatural conquest. So in a sense, the spies were correct. This generation was not psychologically capable of waging war through natural means and conquering our land. And as a result, we had to wait, uh, you know, almost 40 years. But that generation had died out and it was really on the 15th of Av that we realized that it was over, that everyone who was meant to die from that transgression had. This is now a new generation, right? Wow. And it's also said that uh, during all of the years of the decree, you know, between the sin of the spies and this tuba of when we realized it was over, the creator didn't speak to Moshe directly, but only through the Urim Betumim, right? What is the Urim Betumim? It, it's part of the high priest's breastplate, essentially where um, a lot of national leaders throughout our early history would consult. It was a way to receive a divine answer to questions like, uh, should we go to war? Should we not go to war? You know, which tribe should lead the fight? You know, things like that. And there were different tribal stones in the high priests in the Kohen Gadol's breastplate that would light up or certain letters of tribal names that would light up. And uh, that would give us our answer if we know how to read it correctly. But on Tuba of, of the 40th year, once our desert journey had begun to come to an end, once it was clear that the consequence of the sin of the spies was no longer affecting us, meaning that the entire generation that was meant to die out had done so, you know, the creator began to communicate with Moshe directly once again. So that's uh, the initial reason I'd say why we look at the 15th of Av as a special day that the generation stopped dying out uh, or had finished dying out, we could say, but everyone who was still alive knew that they were part of the nation, they were part of the generation that was going to enter the promised land and conquer it and divide it up by the tribes. And uh, the flip side of that, or the, I guess, the icing on the cake, or in addition to that, um, Moshe once again began to receive direct prophecy, direct nivuah, or actually uh, something beyond nivuah, because at least according to the Rambam, there are 11 levels of nivuah, 11 levels of what's often translated into English as prophecy. And Moshe is actually beyond 11. He's not 12, he's like something else that we don't really have a word for, but it's beyond even the 11th level of nivuah. And so he began to experience that again, you know, at least wow. 
uh, on the 15th of Av in the 40th year. It's like the ultimate form of connection with Hashem, the closest that we know of. Right. And then what follows from there is uh, actually the book of Moshe, right? Which is Sefer Dvarim, which now we're in, you know, in our weekly Torah portion. We're now at the beginning of the book of Dvarim, which is really Moshe's like spiritual and political testament. Of course, also Nebuah. Um, so that's the first reason. Uh, the second reason listed in Bhavavatra for why we um, celebrate Tuba'av is that uh, the different Hebrew tribes were granted permission to intermarry. Um, you know, today we think of the Jewish people or, or the children of Israel as kind of like one group more or less, although there are different ways, I think, you know, we, we've spoken before about the different ways that the tribes manifest in our identity. One nation, but 12 tribes. Right, but but historically the tribes were initially biological, primarily biological. And each tribe, in a sense, regarded itself as like a single nation. And it was kind of like a, a federal union of these different tribes of Israel. But, you know, together they were Israel. You know, they formed Israel together, but separately they had their very strong tribal identities. Now, the first generation to enter the land of Israel and receive their tribal portions, you know, there were situations uh, like the daughters of Slavchad, like uh, Israelite women who inherited their fathers in the father's land. They weren't permitted to marry outside of their own tribe because we didn't want tribal territories passing from one tribe to another, right? Because when a woman marries a man, she essentially joins his tribe. Like, even though mm -hmm. we consider somebody one of us, like part of Am Yisrael, if their mother is Am Yisrael, right? If their mother is an Israeli, an Israelite, a Jew, you know. Yeah. But the tribe goes according to the father. So if a, if a woman were to inherit her father's land and then marry a man from another tribe, the concern is that that land would pass to that other tribe. Is that like when a, when a woman marries today, um... A man, she inherits like culture, like Sephardi, Ashley, like that's what she takes on. Does that come from that? Yeah, very similar. Very similar. <laughs> that even though, right, even though one's Jewishness is determined by the mother, one's place in the broader Jewish uh, tapestry is determined by the father. So it was actually on Tuba'av, starting with the generation after the conquest of the land of Israel, that women were granted permission uh, to marry whoever they wanted from any tribe. Wow. And did that create like political, not political, but like kind of, I guess you could say political confusion with the terms of the tribes? Like how did they still maintain? There was less of a concern at that point of the, uh, of the land passing meaning the land would not pass from one tribe to another. Interesting. So again, connection and unity. Yeah. And then the third reason for Tuba'av, and this is, by the way, probably the most famous of all six. That we Yeah, this is the one, it's about um, Binyamin. This is the one that I, like when I hear Tuba'av, this is the story behind it that I know most famously. Right. That's the, the civil war between Binyamin and the other Israelite tribes. Right, Binyamin was nearly wiped out. Only 600 young men managed to survive. Uh, the other tribes had essentially, during the conflict, the other tribes had essentially taken an oath not to allow their daughters to marry anyone from the tribe of Binyamin. And what you know, what happened is that after the war, you know, tensions had lowered. 
And the people realized that Binyamin was in danger of extinction. So on the one hand, uh, the other tribes regretted their oath and uh, they wanted to look for a way to help Binyamin survive. And it was decided that no one would willingly give his daughter to a man of Binyamin, but neither would he prevent one from, from running off with a man from Binyamin. Meaning that the mechanism they figured out, and this is probably where, you know, it, this is this is probably where like the romantic angle of Tubav really comes from, is that on the 15th of Av, single women who wanted, right, who who were interested, would borrow white dresses from one another so that no one would know who's wealthy and who's not wealthy, and they would dance in the vineyards near Shiloh. And men of the tribe of Binyamin would quote unquote kidnap a woman with obviously the tacit agreement of the girl and her family and uh, run off with her and that is how the men of Binyamin would uh, marry and repopulate their tribe and it became a it was a custom for a long time that men from the tribe of Binyamin would come every Tuba'av to the vineyards of Shiloh and snatch a woman. And obviously the women who they were snatching were women who made a choice to go there, to borrow a dress, to dance, and uh, to be taken by a man of Binyamin. Uh, so that's probably where the quote unquote, like Valentine's Day connection comes in. Mm -hmm. We can go on to the next event that commemorates Tubav. Well, the next event is that Hoshea ben Ella who was the king of Israel when the when the kingdom split? You know, the kingdom split between um, Yehuda and Israel. Yehuda was the Davidic kingdom, right? Which was um, Yehuda, Benjamin, Shimon, and Levi, essentially. And then you had the kingdom of Israel, which was the rest of the tribes and much stronger, uh, much more connected to the rest of the world at the time. And uh, Yeravam ben Avat, who was the first leader of this secessionist kingdom of Israel, um, you know, he feared that if Jerusalem continued to serve as Israel's spiritual capital, even though he was a stronger king than his rival, Rechavam ben Shlomo, right? The kingdom split in the time of Shlomo. Rechavam, Shlomo's son, ruled this now like much smaller kingdom from Yerushalayim, from Jerusalem, but only Yehuda, his own tribe, Benjamin, Shimon, and Levi, were with him. And all the other tribes are now being led by Yeravam ben Avat from the tribe of Ephraim. Now, the tribe of Ephraim is one of the sub-tribes of Yosef. Um, you know, Yosef is very good at managing the material world. Economies, armies, you know, states, etc. And this kingdom of Israel became very, very powerful. Much more powerful than the kingdom of Yehuda. Um, but three times a year, the king of Israel had a problem that most of his people would go down to Jerusalem on Pesach and on Shavuot and on Sukkot, um, on what's called Ali Ala Regal, like pilgrimage to the temple. And on the Temple Mount, only one human being is allowed to sit down, and that's the king of Israel. But it's not him, it's his rival, the weaker king from the kingdom of Yehuda. He, from a Torah perspective is the more legitimate king, and he's allowed to sit on the Temple Mount. No one else is, including his more powerful rival, Yeravam ben Avat. So Yeravam basically uh, outlaws going to Jerusalem, right? He was afraid that it would weaken the legitimacy of his rule. 
you know, and he created replacements. He said, no one's allowed to go to Jerusalem anymore. And instead, you go to Beit El or Dan, where he put up golden calves uh, in order for people to serve Hashem through the golden calf. That was kind of what was going on in the kingdom of Israel, unfortunately. That happened on your mountain, no? That have, yeah, that's on the mountain where I live, actually. One of them, Betel, right? The um, the mountain I live on is actually where he had one of his temples uh, with a golden calf. And this is a replacement for the temple. And it was um, for a long time where the Israelites who were loyal to Hashem would come and uh, bring their korbanot, unfortunately. Not the Nevi'im, of course, but just like the common person. Whereas, unfortunately, those who were not loyal went, you know, descended deeper into other forms of idolatry. What's interesting about a golden calf, by the way, is unlike a lot of other forms of idolatry uh, we see in the Tanakh, the golden calf actually comes from inside our own identity. It's not something we pick up from the Canaanites or the Moabites or the Philistines, but actually a type of idolatry that's unique to our identity. So that's something we have to be especially careful with. But that's what he did. And he basically said, he, he put, Yeravam put soldiers to guard the border between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah in order to prevent his people from crossing over into Judean territory and visiting Jerusalem, right? So one of his eventual successors uh, towards the end of the Israelite kingdom, Hoshea ben Ela, um, he annulled the decree on Tuba'av and permitted the pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He would permit um, the people of Israel, the people of the northern tribes, the northern kingdom, to go and bring uh, Korbanot to the temple in Jerusalem. So mm -hmm. that's another reason why we celebrate Tuba'av. Mm -hmm. The fifth reason, the, the fifth reason is actually um, very interesting. When we revolted against the Romans, um, after our temple was destroyed, after our national framework was destroyed, like a generation after the destruction of Jerusalem, there was another revolt led by Shimon Bar Kochba and his teacher, Rabbi Akiva Ben Yosef. And that revolt was actually very successful. It drove the Romans away, destroyed entire uh, legions of the Roman military. But eventually, uh, the Romans began to turn the tide of battle. They reconquered Jerusalem from us. And the fortress of Betar was really the last holdout of Bar Kokhba's men. And Betar is a little bit south of Jerusalem, uh, very close to uh, Bethlehem. Who lives in Betar today? T today it's a Haredi city. Interesting. Like uh, just kind of between Jerusalem and Gush Etzion. But when Betar was the, um, the, the last stronghold of Bar Kokhba's men, it fell to the Romans on the 9th of Av. In the year 3895, according to our calendar, uh, 135, according to the Christian calendar. And um, that was pretty much the end of this phase of our anti-Roman struggle. And many thousands of Borkochba's men were killed. And one of the things that the Romans decreed was that we were not allowed to bury our dead. Okay, so on the 9th of Av, they crushed our revolt at Betar. They killed many thousands of our warriors, but they wouldn't permit us to bury them. So you have these martyrs that are kind of just lying there, you know, like these corpses for years until the year 3908, 
which is 148, according to the Christians. On the 15th of Av, uh, the Romans finally gave us permission to bury our dead. Again, we're talking about 13 years later. So for 13 years, our martyrs were lying throughout the Judean hills, um, thousands and thousands of bodies. And when we finally got permission to bury them, we discovered that none of them had decomposed. And uh, one of the reasons why I believe very strongly that this is true, well, there's two reasons why I believe it's true. Number one, our sages went and added an entire part of Birkat Amazon, the grace after meals, like the thing we say after eating a bread meal, right? There's a part, the fourth bracha, which is Hatovu uh, Metiv. This, according to the Talmud in Brachot, was added to the uh, Birkat Amazon, thanking the Kadosh Baruch Hu for the bodies of our fallen fighters not decomposing for 13 years. So the fact that we added a, a part to Birkat Amazon, the, the fact that we actually added a brachat to Birkat Amazon, uh, convinces me that this was like a real thing, because I don't think our Chachamim would have done that lightly. The second reason why I tend to believe this story is because we saw something very similar happen in modern times, that when Eliyahu Betsuri and Eliyahu Hakim from the Lehi, from the Lochamecha Rut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, went to Cairo and assassinated Lord Moyne, uh, they were they were executed and essentially buried. They, they were executed, they were buried in Cairo. Uh, they actually shared a grave in the Jewish cemetery there. But 30 years later, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had their bodies brought back as part of a deal he had made with Egypt at the time. And he sent a member of Knesset named Yitzhak Shamir from the Likud, uh, who had been their commander uh, in the Lehi, in the underground, and had sent them to assassinate Lord Moyne. He went to go greet the bodies, and uh, he writes that when he saw them, he almost fainted. Their facial hair, fingernails, everything was like when they were executed. They had not decomposed 30 years. And, and it says in the Gemara, in, in three places actually, that the martyrs of Israel, death cannot touch them. So, um, we know there's something uniquely holy about our martyrs, our fighters who die in battle, uh, whether they be the fighters of Bar Kochba fighting the Romans, or they be Lehi assassins um, executed in Cairo, that uh, we've seen uh, at least two examples of our fallen warriors not decomposing. Wow. But again, it was on Tuba'av that we were given permission to finally bury them, and we discovered the fact that they had not decomposed. Mm, amazing. So again, like the theme of unification, like coming back together. There's this theme among all these events that are all landing on Tubab. Mm -hmm. Right. And the last one? The last one is just that trees were no longer uh, cut down for use on the altar. You know, the wood that we used to fuel uh, the Mizbech, the altar at the Beit HaMikdash, the temple, you know, the, the wood would be dry uh, because fresh logs would be suspected of containing worms. And after the 15th of Av, the days start to become shorter and the sun is no longer strong enough to dry out freshly cut logs. Uh, therefore, no more trees are chopped down after Tuba Av. And they, they became known as, uh, according to uh, Rashi in the, in the Gemara and Tanit, that they became known as axe breaking day. 
Now, this also reminds us of our dedication to Yerushalayim. The Gemara tells us that when the Roman rulers would pass a law forbidding us from bringing wood for the altar in the temple, uh, the empire would station guards at checkpoints along the main roads to prevent us from approaching the temple with lugs. So one thing we did in order to kind of circumvent this decree, we would make ladders out of the lugs and carry them on our shoulders to Jerusalem as if they're ladders. And when the Roman guards demanded to know where we were headed, they'd say, uh, we're going to bring doves to our dovecoats down the road. And as soon as they'd passed the checkpoint, they would dismantle the ladders and bring the logs up to the temple in Jerusalem. So it says in the Gemara Tanit that these righteous men deserve to be remembered as righteous, you know, of blessed memory. So we could see that even under persecution, you know, and hardship, we remain faithful to Jerusalem and to the temple service. So all six of these events, you know, all six of these events that we remember on Tubav essentially share one feature in common. On this day, different segments of our people, different segments of our land were united. Uh, the generation of the desert stopped dying from the sin of the spies and was forgiven. Uh, the, the nation was forgiven. The nation was ready to actually move on and conquer our land. Moshe began to receive direct nivuah again. Uh, Israelites of different tribes were permitted to, to marry one another. Uh, men of Binyamin were able to marry women from other tribes and populate following a really, really devastating civil war. The border guards preventing Israelis from coming to Jerusalem and Ali al Regal on pilgrimage were removed. The martyrs of Betar were brought to burial, uh, honoring the memory of those fighters who gave their lives to free our land. Um, trees were no longer cut down to be burnt on the altar. Um, and uh, that all of that together is really like the opposite of Tisha B'Av, right? In contrast to the Sinat Chinam, to the baseless hatred that really brought about the destruction of Jerusalem and led us into exile, the events that we commemorate on Tuba B'Av really revolve around love and unity among different sectors of our society, as well as our deep connection to our land. So I think that we can make a Tuba B'Av is very much like the opposite of Tisha B'Av. Right. I think my final question would be how do we bring this holiday back to our roots today like how how do we celebrate this special day today in the most authentically hebrew way look i think the best way to kind of uh first of all i, I think you made a very important point uh, early on that this has become like a jewish valentine's day and I think it's important to break that. And maybe one of the ways to break that is to focus on some of the other. Remember, like we talked about six different reasons, six different events that are commemorated on Tuba Av. Um, we essentially focus on one. We focus on the fact that, I mean, it's also you know a little interesting that that's what we focus on. The men of Binyamin, you know, kidnapping uh, women from other tribes who obviously want to be kidnapped. Like, again, we're talking about women who made the effort to borrow dresses from their friends and go dance in the vineyards, expecting a man from the tribe of Benjamin to come and take them. Uh, but still, like, there are five other reasons to rejoice in Tuba'av. Maybe we can start bringing some of the others to the foreground. Um, maybe instead of Tuba'av being an evening for, like, people to go on dates, maybe Tuba'av could be a, a night for, like, big groups together and have conversations or even parties 
you know, around like, what do we celebrate? What do we think about? What does it mean for us? You know, again, at the end of the day, it's about our national unity and our connection to our land, which are of course prerequisites for us being able to fulfill our mission in history. So it's much, much deeper than like a Jewish Valentine's Day, a night for somebody to uh, take their wife out to dinner. It's really, you know, that we can do, you know, Baruch Hashem, there, there are many nights on our calendar where we can uh, take our wives out for dinner, but Tuba Av carries deep ideas that really connect us to our identity, to our people, to our land, and to our Torah. I'd say Valentine's Day, the Christian Valentine's Day, focuses more on the individual. Tuba Av focuses more on unifying the people. Yeah, for sure. And that's without even getting into the conversation over who Valentine was. It's a very painful conversation. Right. Um, all right. All right. Thank you, Rabbi Yehuda, for having this conversation today. For sure. I, I wish you and all of our listeners a joyful to above. And before we end off, I'd like to remind listeners that if you like what we do here at Vision Movement and at Vision Magazine, you can support our work by going to visionmovement.org or visionmag.org and clicking the donate button on the menu bar up top. Please keep in mind that we are 100% listener funded and we don't want that to change. So your support is important and very much appreciated. And if you'd like to find the show notes for this episode, you can go to visionmag.org backslash the next stage 82. 